In other news, Governor Cuomo announced yesterday that he was planning to work with the Gates Foundation on reimagining schools for next year, involving the expansion of ed tech. This really set me off and a bunch of other parents and educators, given how Gates has repeatedly messed up education in the state, whether that was the defective common core standards, unreliable teacher evaluation linked to test scores, or the privacy violating data collection that was supposed to happen through their a corporation called InBloom Inc. We sent a letter along with New York State Allies for Public Education and the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy urging the governor to listen to parents and teachers rather than allow the Gates Foundation to implement their damaging education agenda once again. Since the schools were shut down, our understanding of the profound problems of screen-based instruction and ed tech have only grown. As one teacher commented, if next fall I told my students to open up their Chromebooks, I think they'd throw them at me. Instead, we urged Cuomo to fund our schools sufficiently and equitably to allow for the smaller classes, school counselors, and other critical services that our children will need more than ever before, given the myriad losses that they've experienced this year. Now, that should lead me to my next guest, Michael Mulgrew, the president of the United Federation of Teachers. Only I'm not sure if he's on the line. He is Michael, on the line. There? Oh, great. Oh, great. I was supposed to get a text and I didn't. So I'm so <laughs> relieved that you're here. Uh, before we start, are you interested in commenting on the governor's plan announced yesterday to work with the Gates Foundation on reimagining our schools? Um, I, I, You know, right now, I think New York City has probably the largest uh, concentration of experts on how to reimagine schools, <laughs> the people actually doing the work. Um, and even though in the past we have worked with the Gates Foundation, we have not over their 20 years of trying to do educational work, I don't think they have been very successful. So, I mean, it's the governor's choice who he wants to talk to, but I would work with people who are actually getting things done and being successful versus talking to people who have looked very nice, filling uh, their philanthropy, but uh, when it comes to education, they have not proven to be very successful. So what? I just wish the governor would talk to the people. This has been a common thread, though. You know, I mean, you, you, you've been through this. You know, you and I have been in, in the middle of these wars uh, about education for the past 15 to 20 years, and this has been a common thread, uh, the disrespect of the people who actually know this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, the people doing the work. Uh, do you think teachers wanted education the way it was? No, they're always looking at ways to improve it, and they get very frustrated and angry. Uh, yet constantly you see these leaders or elected officials always going to people who know nothing and have never spent time in classrooms doing this work to try to get their opinion. It, it's, it's beyond disrespectful at this point. Right. Well, recently it was reported that 72 Department of Education employees have died from COVID-19, including 28 paraprofessionals and 28 teachers. Um, I want to start with a question sent in uh, for me to ask you by a Brooklyn parent leader who's very concerned about the health crisis, of course, and writes, the DOE's handling of the epidemic to keep schools open after the outbreak of COVID-19 is now the subject of an investigation by a city watchdog charged with overseeing schools. Mm -hmm. I have serious concerns for my son's return to school in September and the ability of the district to handle the outbreak, seeing I had to demand soap and hot water be provided along with better cleaning. I feel the district dropped the ball and endangered lives of school staff, students, and whoever they came into contact with at home. 
What is the UFT doing to ensure the safety of our kids next year? So this is one of the reasons why you've seen over the last 10 days, uh, 12 days, that we've been putting uh, a big push on how to, what is the vision for and what needs to be in place for reopening schools. Um, first, it was trying to get the remote learning process in place because we never, there was no training, there was no plan. You know the whole routine that happened. We just closed. But for us now, it's really about trying to get people to understand that it's a very complicated thing to try to open schools up in the current environment we're work, uh, that we're all dealing with. But a non, you know, it's non-negotiable. Whatever we set the rules are have to be the rules and they have to be followed. The city was not following the rules before we closed down. The state had put out that schools, if there was any positive tests, that schools had to be closed for 24 hours and that um, contact tracing had to happen. They said that every school would have its proper cleaning supplies and be going through deep cleaning uh, on a nightly basis. None of that happened. Uh, it happened here or there. The first school that was closed, they did contact tracing, but that's the last piece of evidence we had. And then it became even more frustrating because we got we received more and more reports. We pushed them back at the city. Uh, custodians were telling us they did not have the suppliers to do what they were being asked to do. We uh, we had positive test results that the city was ignoring because they said they were no, now only going to recognize uh, positive test results that came through the State Department of Health, which from uh, an actual person getting a positive test result from their doctor takes days for that to mm -hmm. get through into the state. So that, you know, we've been quite outspoken on all of that. So for us, it's this is this is not negotiable. This has to be followed. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's a problem, then we're going to work with parents uh, together to go after those people who aren't doing this. Um, I hope that people have learned a lot. Uh, these are very hard lessons uh, that people have been learning about how to handle this stuff and people who thought that this would just be something that passed like other health crises we've had in the past. Um, I think I now understand that this is a whole different this is a whole different issue that we're dealing with and we can't and we have to make sure that safety is the priority. So we want to go back to our schools, but we know we have to do it with social distancing, which is extremely complicated. And we know we have to have rules and procedures in place that must be followed. So mm -hmm. that's what we, we've already started this. And we push this also at the state level. Uh, all the different things we've been seeing, you know, we put out, uh, I wrote an op-ed, uh, certain people were not happy with it, but I said, nobody is talking to the educators. Once again, you're all, we heard people at the city and the state level and different places and across the country talking about, oh, yeah, we should reopen our schools. And I don't think they, as usual, because they didn't understand the implications and the complications of opening the school, especially with this virus, uh, that's, that's why we push this out. But we have a long way to go before we can get, uh, before we have a plan in place. Uh, and when we have that plan in place, it has to be open, transparent, and everybody has to know it. And if they feel it's not being followed, then we have to, it has to be addressed in, a, in an extremely quick manner. So I don't know whether you noticed, but there were two new studies that were published in the New York Times this morning, um, uh, citing um, science studies that showed that closing the schools slowed the epidemic by about 40 to 60 percent. 
And this was true, especially as children are likely to be asymptomatic and yet can, can transmit the virus very effectively. What specific measures is the union advocating for in terms of restructuring schools and classrooms, both to ensure health and safety, as well as provide the instructional and emotional support necessary to make up for all the losses that students have experienced this year? So there, we, at this moment, look, everything is subject to change as we learn more and more. And, 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 you know, we're happy that we get to most of the time work with educators who are okay with new information and making, you know, and adjusting to it. Because that's what you do every day when you teach. For us, it's, it's what has to be in place before we walk back into a school building. What do we have to have in place so that parents and students and teachers have an assurance that there's, it's safe to walk into a building and that you're not going to spread a contamination inside of a building? Okay, mm -hmm. then it's what are the social distancing rules that have to be in effect? We, you know, we could look at square footage, but there's there's no blanket for New York City because school school buildings physically themselves are all different. Mm -hmm. So that's a big conversation that's happening right now. So how do you do that? And then that ties into programming. So how do you program a building? So I think a lot of the elected officials kept saying that we want to open up the economy and we have to open up schools because we need daycare. Well, that mm -hmm. angers us. Quite frankly, it just pisses us off mm -hmm. when we hear those things. Because yeah. if the only thing you think about a school is that it's a day daycare uh, um, facility, it's shame on you. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, people said, no, we understand that, but you have to understand the economy. Well, I think they now all understand that if we reopen school with social distancing, there is no way all students can ever be back in the building at the same time until we have a vaccine. Right. Well, and that's a biggie now. So now it's like, well, who's going to be responsible for the daycare? Well, we have to teach children. Right. <laughs> you, you have to figure that out. And then the instructional piece. Well, the one thing is that we're learning a lot, but uh, on remote l learning, um, but it's now moving into a model where we can actually be uh, be physically present with our students for part of the time. And then how do we then change what we've learned about remote learning and remote teaching to come up with an, a new model that says I'm going to see my students part of the time. And because right now, the a lot of the time that teachers are spending is individually one on one with students, helping them figure out the technology, helping them figure out. Uh, different aspects of a concept of a lesson because they're not face to face with them. So teachers have been telling me for weeks, if I could just spend, you know, a half a day with my students, I could really, fig you know, straighten out most of the issues we're having that are costing, you know, each teacher hours and hours a day and really just focus on instruction. Social emotional mm -hmm. is going to be a huge problem. Not, I mean, for schools, obviously it's a it's a major problem. It's going to be a problem we're going to have across society, but I don't remember a generation. I don't remember the last generation that grew up uh, with the news every day talking about how many dead, uh, how many people died, and how there's trailers filled with uh, um, uh, with people who have passed because there's no room and they can't do the funerals. That's mm -hmm. going to take a major toll on our students. And at the same time, we're facing these huge budget cuts. Right. So, so something's got to give here. Right. Well, many countries are, are 
implementing smaller classes to provide the recommended social distancing, sometimes along with split or staggered schedules. Some states are proposing to do this as well, including California. The AFT recently um, released a a report with this recommendation saying that one of the most important measures districts can take is to reduce class size, and that class sizes of 12 to 15 students will, in most circumstances, make it possible to maintain physical distancing protocols. Serendipitously, smaller classes, as you know, would also be beneficial in strengthening the personal instruction and feedback that students will need given their detrimental experiences this year. Should class size reduction happen in New York City, too? And if so, how? Yeah, it definitely. Uh, there's, uh, I, I think that there is no way that we're going to reopen our schools unless there's a serious reduction in class size. So then, uh, and I, I do believe, like you do, that that absolutely leads to much better instruction. Uh, I, depending on the school itself, I could see class sizes being capped at 10 in certain, uh, in certain schools, 12 max, I would think, would be 15. And, and that would be tough to figure uh, to find schools with 15. And, of course, we're not talking about um, physical education or things like that. They're, they're going to have their own issues because children running around sweating produce a whole different other health problem. Um, so the class sizes are going to have to be reduced in order for us to open up our schools. Now, the Department of Ed will say that with just the number of students, but that faced it. And this is part of the conversations we're having with the Department of Education. So if I have 28 students in a class and um, I have 12 coming one day and then 12 another day, what do I do with the other four if that's all they can do? I said, then you're going to have to lower the class size if you're going to try to do an alternating schedule. Mm-hmm. Then you have to then automatically lower the class size but and then the other piece they would say yeah but the other students are being remotely taught I said well if I'm a teacher teaching full-time all all day you're then expecting me to go home and remotely teach right and how does that work then and how does that work when we have a bunch of teachers working 18-hour days (laughs) right so so, and now all of a sudden everybody's the light bulbs are going off all over everybody above everyone's head when um when we're doing these Zoom chats and different things, you know, they try to keep just coming up with plans. And I'm like, this is going to be difficult. And which is why I was happy when uh, Chancellor Rosa said we're doing our own thing with the state. Uh, I had, we had already started. We were working with the Department of Ed and with CSA before uh, anyone made an announcement about this. We said, forget this. We're not waiting because if we keep waiting for elected officials to decide what to do with education, then the kids are going to suffer and we're going to be left in, a, in an impossible position in, get, in terms of being, doing our jobs effectively. Right. I was very glad to see that the regions are, conf- uh, are trying to convene some sort of task force. That actually came in the wake of Governor Cuomo announcing a very large task force that he was planning to uh, convene that had not one teacher or anyone from K-12 education um, on it, even though it had more than 100 people appointed, which I think was shocking to a lot of parents and teachers that that he seemed to think that the planning um, for resuming the economy and, and, and ending the shutdown could happen without any educators or parents involved. Um, one of the issues that we have, of course, that this is all happening in the context of are the huge budget cuts that are planned for schools for next year. Mayor de Blasio actually said next school year will have to be the greatest academic school year we've ever had because everyone's going to be playing catch up. 
And yet he's also proposed over 800 million in budget cuts to education, including at least about 240 million directly to school budgets, including staffing freezes and cuts to fair student funding, which would likely cause class sizes to increase even more and lose their school counselors and other essential staff. How could next year ever be the best year ever, given such drastic cuts? It won't be if we don't do something differently. It's pretty simple. You can't say uh, right. He's right by saying it needs to be a phenomenal academic year. Uh, But he's also uh, what they're proposing in the budget means that there is no way that can happen. Um, Mm -hmm. We're just going to going to be holding on at that point. Um, So, you know, I was on an AFT conference call last night uh, with about 26,000 people. Um, and, and we, the main thrust was this conversation about how we need this additional federal package, but we also need in it uh, specific earmarks for K through 12 education that cannot that that cannot be used in a supplemental manner through a state budget. So you know, it can't. It has to be used. Uh, we can't be supplanting. So our issue is this. If the say this federal package, I'm sorry, say this federal package comes through mm-hmm. uh, and New York State receives, you know, twelve billion dollars. Mm-hmm. We have no guarantee if the money is just sent here that the governor is going to put it in K through 12 education, do we? No. And then the the care package, which they already passed, which was specifically for education. What happened was that that did supplant state funding and recent studies show that new york city was cut back even more as a result than other less high needs so the supplanting is here we are all these years later with the supplement versus supplant and we're back to this again so but first we have to get the federal package through and then we need to make sure that that it is earmarked specifically and it and and it has to be a supplement period End of story. Now, that's a huge political lift. What I heard going on in other states was horrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, governors just using this as opportunities, cutting public education budgets dramatically, at the same time increasing voucher programs Mm -hmm. in the middle of all of this. But every state is having cuts. So this is a a big push that we're going to have to do. So it really comes down to... uh, we have to get our economy moving. We understand that. But at the same time, you have to protect the services that are vital to a community and you have to protect the education of children. Uh, that's going to be actions. Will the action, It's not words that we're going to judge. It's actions that we're going to need to judge. But we are advocating for this uh, the additional federal package, but we want a safety net put around the education money so it actually goes to school and it's not being taken out of their existing budget and then just backfilling a hole and they're just using the money somewhere else. Those gains just have to stop. You can't, everyone understands how important this is going into next school year and that's the only way we're going to have a a chance at fulfilling this great academic year. So Governor Cuomo has also floated the possibility of cutting back state aid to schools by another 20%. Yep. What can parents and other listeners to this show, community members, advocates do to try to pre- prevent this? 
you know, write the governor, email the governor at this point. We can't, you know, demonstrations are a no-no right now. Right. Um, we have a lot going on uh, in terms of uh, we already have a petition out there with a lot, you know, over 100,000 people on it. Uh, a lot of them are parent signatures about the safety piece. But now it's really about how quickly we can get together and organize around this getting this additional federal package and making sure that that money is being used right now for education. Because it's not just, it's our budgets are cut. What do you think the costs are for all these new things we're going to have to do now in order Mm -hmm. to keep children safe? How, Mm -hmm. you know, each school is going to need the, the PPE supplies. We're really, you know, all of that cleaning, a school's going to need a deep cleaning on a nightly basis. And, mm-hmm. and that's only if we do alternating schedules. If you try to do a split schedule during the day, you're talking about you need to clean the school three times a day. So all so, of this stuff now starts to enter into these things. And we have to close, you know, look, I'm very happy with New York City's performance overall, what the teachers were able to pull off in terms of remote learning, but we still got an equity problem. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what, you know, what, what my com- part of my conversation with the Department of Ed is like, we're learning and we have no, you know, we're going to spend the rest of the school year f- still focusing on remote learning, but also developing professional, uh, doing a lot of professional development for our teachers. We've been grouping teachers with teachers, teachers who are struggling with teachers who are doing well and all, the, all these other things. Now we want to do best practice models. So we're going to be training teachers more and more moving forward. I said, we're going to push that piece, but I need you to solve the equity issue here. You know, you know, I, I can't, you know, teachers get very frustrated when like, look, if I do, I have to make a choice. Do Uh-oh, I do live hello? teaching? You hear me? Did I get cut off? I don't. Do you hear me? Am I there? I hear you. Just go right ahead, Lanny. So uh, we'll have to have Lanny join us back. She is back. Michael Mogul. Lanny, you're back with Michael Mogul. Yes, I'm back. I'm sorry. Someone called my my cell. So 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 we have to solve this equity issue at the same time. We'll do the professional development and and what all these teachers are learning, these new tools they're learning, but... We can only solve the equity issue with the Department of Education. So we only have a period of time to get this all solved. Teachers, every day, they're trying to decide, all right, if I do two hours of live instruction and I get half the class, Mm -hmm. then the other half of my class can't get on because of equity Mm -hmm. issues. So now I have to then figure out how to get get you know have access and communicate with those students at the same time or is it better they're talking to the parents if i film a lesson and put it up and then the parent can go and when they have time to look at it now high schools it's a different situation because you don't need uh by and large we don't need the parent to help facilitate this but at the elementary level, this has been proved. This is one of the biggest challenges we're facing. So it's not just about getting them the technology; it's the right amount of technology, and then helping with the with students and figure, helping how to figure out what's the best learning modality for them if they're in remote instruction. Because mm-hmm. it's not, you know, we we hear people like, well, why don't you just, you know, put the teacher in front of the screen and let them teach? It it's it's not very effective. <laughs> No, and and what the research actually shows is not only does remote learning not work well for all students, but it works the worst with the kids who need the most help. 
um, struggling kids, kids who don't have a lot of support at home, kids who are English language learners or who have special needs fall further and further behind through online learning. And in that in that way, it's sort of the opposite of class size reduction, which benefits all kids, but especially those kids who need the help the most. And so I'm, you know, I understand that um, under this situation at, at education technology and remote learning, there was no other choice. But I'm very worried that as as the governor and the Gates Foundation and others push for more and more of this, given both the problems of, of trying to figure out how to reopen schools next year, but also the big cuts to the budget, um, they envision this as a really cheap way to go, as an efficient way to go, whereas it's not really efficient if you're, you really care about how kids are learning. Uh, and that is definitely a real fear out there because the, the with the budget cuts and they're just trying to figure out how they don't have to spend money on things that they're not putting as a priority. You're mm-hmm. not going to look, look, the, we, we've heard about the create a test for every child, for every unit, make them sit for a test in front of a computer. They tried all of this. This was tried in New York city. This was tried in the I zone. This was tried all over the place. It failed mm-hmm. miserably when they kept the iLearning open and teachers started taking control of how to use this tool in a way to start to customize instruction, but it was really between the teacher and the student and doing the different things. That and started, we started seeing uh, some things there that were proving to be very helpful, but it actually was the biggest um, factor for us to determine that if you're going to use these tools to customize instruction, what you're actually going to need are smaller class sizes because it takes so much more because the amount of work involved and how deep you go with each student is it's just like you can't do, you know, you're you're talking about 14, 15 hour days. So these folks have always, it's almost like Joel Klein came back all of a sudden. (laughs) Oh, we're going to, we're going to put every, we're just going to test everyone and put them in front. It's not, we've done this, stop it. It doesn't work. In fact, it harms children. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, look at the past. And I I don't know where the Gates people are going to try to push this. They really have kind of stayed out of education. They've been more in the health side, Uh, but we'll see. I mean, um, uh, but yes, I get very concerned when all of a sudden people want to reimagine education in the middle of budget cuts. Yeah, yeah. So are there, I mean, we've been trying to come up with some alternative budget cuts to education that might save um, any impact on schools or even create enough savings so that we might be able to hire more teachers to reduce class size and hire more counselors. Is the UFT, do you have any suggestions? Are you going to come up with a list of possible yeah. savings from the education budget so that we already went right out there six billion dollars on central spending that does not include buses or food? Mm-hmm. So you're going to put some, a statement out or some specific? We've already put that out. Uh, we're going okay. to keep pushing at that because our, for me, especially now. So what happened? We had to close our schools out of nowhere. We had to come up with this plan. And yes, there were some folks who proved to be um, helpful from Central, but it wasn't $6 billion worth. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, but what, 
what we've noticed especially is the growth of the mid 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 level bureaucracy. So yeah. under de Blasio, the spending on the mid level bureaucracy has roughly doubled. Yeah. And it seems to me we can go back to what it was um, in 2014. And that alone could save hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, because very, very little of it actually ever gets to schools. That's what mm -hmm. my concern is. There are some people we have, you know, there's some smaller groups of folks inside of the Department of Ed who have proven to be very effective with helping schools. But they are not the ones who are moving bigger projects. And those bigger projects, uh, we don't understand, like right now, why the Department of Ed would be looking at any sort of contracts like uh, we have special education issues in this, and I keep hearing about, well, we're looking at a company. I'm like, you have a huge department at Central. You then have a department for the same issues at every borough field support center or whatever they're calling them these days. Why are you looking at anyone on the outside? What are you doing with all these people you have? Right. One of the contracts that's supposed to be voted on tomorrow night is with Accenture, I think. And yep. we've asked and the reporters have asked and PEP members have asked, what's the per hour rate that they're getting paid and the deal we won't tell anyone. So and they're supposed to be consulting specifically on the COVID issues. And, you know, we don't we, we, we don't understand a lot of these contracts. A lot of them are written also as though schools are still open. And it would seems to me there must be savings in terms of energy, supplies, facilities, all that since the schools have been closed and will have been closed for several months, which were not reflected in the proposed budget for next year. So we're hoping that, you know, we can solidify some of these uh, suggestions and maybe work with, with you guys and the principals union as well to come up with an alternative menu that makes sense. Um, I, for our I, I, schools I, I, and really doesn't decimate them. What concerns me is that I believe that every time there's an issue, they're looking at an outside contract to help them because I don't believe their bureaucracy can help itself anymore. Yeah. Which is I, the biggest piece of evidence you have that this something has to dramatically change now. When, when I was talking to Mark Conazaro, who's the head of the CSA, which he and, you know, make sure to, to emphasize is not just principals, but all sorts of administrators from various yep. levels that he expressed a disappointment with the fact that a lot of these initiatives have been launched even before the school shut down, um, including school improvement task forces, et cetera, et cetera, from Central without any discussion prior with his union. And I'm, I'm wondering whether that's still happening with you guys as well. It was a huge problem under the previous administration, as we know, with um, Bloomberg and Joe Klein, that they had a very top-down sort of way of working. And they had a very rigid sense of beliefs, which they wanted to impose on our schools. But I had hoped that when de Blasio was elected, um, he would be more collaborative. And this this uh, chancellor seems to be more collaborative. Uh -huh. And yet a lot of those conversations don't seem to be happening still. And I wonder if, if you, you feel that way and, and what the explanation might be. No, we have uh, we constantly uh, get on the phone with the Department of Ed um, on a daily basis. We have different people at different levels. I know that their bureaucracy would prefer. I'm not talking about the chancellor now people inside, mm -hmm. because a lot of the people inside there are still the same people from the last mayor. 
<laughs> they would prefer not to talk to anyone. Uh, that's just what it is. And actually, we know that when we actually start working on projects together, there are people inside of their uh, central who don't like it at all and feel like uh, it's more like, more like it's a power struggle. Like, if anything has been proven to be successful in education in the last two decades, it's that when when folks all work together, especially from those who do the teaching and the actual work with students, with those who are supposed to support and help, it actually works better. What we are still dealing with is the fact that our entire central bureaucracy was trained for 12 years to not help schools, mm-hmm. but to hold them accountable. Right. And I think there's folks in there who liked it that way because then they were never responsible for actually proving that they helped schools. Right. Well, they were incentivized the- to attack schools and to attack people because then they were looked at doing a good job versus your accountability system is, are you actually helping schools and getting support? And we're asking the schools if you are helpful. That, right. that, so that dynamic still has not shifted yet. And, and that's what I think is um, another lost opportunity in terms of this administration, because that dynamic didn't shift. This chancellor seems to be trying very hard to shift that. Um, but moving that massive bureaucracy is, uh, you know, uh, w- if you read, if you do a lot of research on bureaucracies, it'll tell you that the one thing a bureaucracy gets very good at is protecting itself. Right. Well, one of the things that we were concerned about before this shutdown happened, and I wonder if it's still happening, is the move by this administration, even though they said they wanted to shift away from high stakes tests to impose a lot of new um, testing on our schools. It's it's supposedly diagnostics done by computers, um, interim testing, formative assessments, however you want to call it. And yet it's still in many people's eyes, represents both a waste of money and a waste of time that should be spent on instruction instead. And I'm wondering whether you, you know, when you heard about that, what your what your views were. So, so this is a tough one, right? Because we have fought against uh, the use of testing in ways that we felt was harmful for students. So, mm-hmm. we've done a lot of this. You know, the UFT has been part of a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So for me as a teacher, I would always take interim assessments of my students. Mm-hmm. Um, when I had, uh, I would get freshman students, so I'm a high school teacher. So when I would get uh, at the, the reorganization in January, I would take a group. I would always start a class of a group of ninth graders who were struggling. Um, mm-hmm. So whether that be struggling for, you know, the, the shift into a high school children sometimes struggle with it was it uh behavior or was it uh, whether it be academics attendance or whatever so i always take and then after three years i one of the things i had to constantly do was do um literacy uh, diagnostics of all my students and then i would assess them uh every couple of weeks now i was doing that myself as a teacher right and it proved to be extremely valuable because a lot of my um a lot of my students who were struggling with behavior were clearly struggling with behavior because they were having academic issues that were not uh, that people didn't uh, diagnose yet. 
So I was lucky enough to have, you know, work in, I worked in the basement, and so I had the school-based support team next to me, and they gave me all of these quick materials to do my own assessments, and we would just start doing that. So we, there's this constant balance of, so when I hear the chancellor, when I speak with him about it, I said, so here's your issue, because he, he comes at it as a teacher. He's like, I want to know as a chancellor, where's, where's the, where, where are the children are doing? I said, I get what you're trying to do, but the problem is by the time it filters down from you, all the way through a school, they're looking at it as you're trying to judge a school and are they going to gain, is, is somebody going to try to put more emphasis on that test than it should be? So for me doing the diagnostic with my own children inside of a classroom, nobody, on, the children aren't being put pressure on them or anything else and they get that we're just trying to figure some things out to help them. But when it's done from the chancellor, I get what he's trying to, to, to you know, establish, like, I need to know, and he and I've seen him speak to principals and superintendents. He goes, I don't want you to make this a high stakes issue, but I don't know if they're capable of not making it a high stakes issue because well, this yeah. was ingrained in them for so many years that your schools and your children, the school, whether it stayed open, uh, children, whether they promoted, was all based around a child sitting for an assessment or a test. So well, the other that's issue the problem is that the, the, yeah, the assessments that you were talking about were ones that, that you designed or you looked at and seemed aligned with the curriculum and helpful. Yes. The ones the chancellor was talking about are these commercially made assessments known as map tests. Mm-hmm. And often they're not aligned with the curriculum. And um, what we found, you know, during the days of Joel Klein, I don't know whether you remember, there were these acuity tests. Oh, yeah, I remember. paid a lot of money. (laughs) Similar, which had nothing to do with what kids were learning, had no diagnostic value, cost a lot of money, and wasted a lot of time. And even Joel Klein, after a few years, dropped them because he realized that after a while. Yeah. They were just bore no relationship to reality. So even if the the stakes were removed and the level of judgment that, you know, schools are worried about and teachers are worried about, um, there's a real question about how useful these things are. And I've talked to parents and, uh, and, and, and teachers in other schools that use these map tests and basically think that they're, they're pointless. Um, so, you know, I think that that's another issue that we should, we should keep aware of, especially in this time of economic crisis, that we should not be wasting so much money right. on buying these sorts of tests. If we had a system with true fidelity in it, but if you're giving an assessment that's supposed to be aligned with a curriculum and you've told the school to use the curriculum, but they still have the autonomy to not use it or to change it however they see fit, mm-hmm. then right then it's not going to work. Yeah. See, that, and the, see, that's the whole – you can't say that we want to assess children and, and you might have the greatest intentions, but unless you have a management system in place that says, look, you can – you can modify your units, but you have to stick to the standards inside of a curriculum. Then there might be some uh, discussion about, okay, maybe this will work. But right now, we don't have that system. You can say that these schools need to uh, have to use this curriculum, but in the end, it's still their final decision. Then I am then I am agreeing with you that shouldn't be happening. So uh, one of the issues that we talked about on last week's show was the new grading system that the DOE has um, decided to 
implement in our schools, and there's a lot of controversy over that. I'm wondering what, what you think of it. No matter what we did, there was going to be controversy, and I. this is what I can tell you. I've spoke with a lot of different parents, I, different focus groups in different uh, at, at every level in all the boroughs. Uh, I spoke with all, all teachers at every level, spe, uh, teachers who teach special education, uh, pre, um, early childhood teachers, elementary, middle, high school, everything. Uh, and, and it was a robust discussion, and it was clear that the things that I found, the one thing I, I, I kept hearing over and over again is we don't want to harm children for uh, what has happened and the challenges we're facing and the fact that schools had to be closed down. But we also want to recognize what they've already done this school year. Well, you know, two thirds of the school year were done for elementary and middle schools. High schools, it really was only one third of the second semester. Um, and so what when we started, my conversation was I had parents who said there shouldn't be grades at all. Everyone should just get their credit. We had parents who said they wanted a rigorous rubric and every child should be graded on specifically what they've been able to put into it. And it doesn't matter if they didn't have uh, access, even when we went to remote learning. Um, then we had others who said, uh, well, can we look at just, you know, nobody fails. We had a lot of no one fails, but we, we do something a little bit more uh, lax where it's like a pass or a pass plus. So there was conversations all over the place on this thing. And it was clear no matter what right. we came up with, there was going to be. It's, and, and Laney, it's New York. So this is New York right. City. We loved <laughs> controversy, yeah, especially on education on policy. We really do. I, so, yeah, so, what, what one of so I heard all of this. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, for me, um, uh, I said, look, what, the thing we need, I, I, I said, because at that point we were really thinking about how to move forward, planning forward. I said, we need to know which children need heavy-duty academic intervention versus those who might need uh, some academic intervention versus those who have actually met the uh, are meeting the standard and actually understanding the curriculum. So, and, and believe it or not, we have a lot of students who are act uh, who are, are fine. They're, they have the entire curriculum for the school year. They're going to have that knowledge forever. Uh, we have a lot, a lot of students who've been fine. So, mm -hmm. to me, I said wherever the policy lands, this is what we need as teachers. Do we need a six-week intervention program, a, quote, traditional summer school? Or are there children who were really doing well and after remote learning kicked in and then they struggled immensely for whatever the reasons were? So we know we need to some in, an academic intervention program for them. What I would like is a, a grading policy that automatically designates that for us as teachers. Mm -hmm. And that was our ask. So the, 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 the system that they came up with was a lot of incompletes, essentially, for um, middle, middle school kids and high school kids who, in the judgment of their teachers, haven't really um, completed the curriculum, completed the learning necessary. And for those kids, they said they will probably be assigned to summer school. My concern, among others, is that nobody really knows what summer schools is going to entail at this point. Nope. Um, and have you heard any planning around that? Have they, has the administration reached out to you about summer school? Because that's a huge black hole right now. You know, you know when we first closed the schools, 
we didn't think we'd be back in six weeks, but we did believe there was a general belief that we would probably be back by June. Uh, now that we then two weeks into the vibe, once we started, once it just completely unleashed inside of our city, we knew that was gone. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, we'll be able to get back for summer school. We are believing that that's not going to happen now either. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to have to be done remotely. And then how do we, you know, the students who struggled in remote instruction are the ones who are going to need this instruction in the summer. And the only avenue we we might have to do that is remote again. So sure. we're trying. So we're having the, the, these are these are conversations that are going on all the time right now. And, mm-hmm. and, and I can tell you that it is CSA and the DOE and the UFT. And because we really lost. I can say, especially the last three weeks, I've seen a whole new. All right. I think it was because we just got angry about elected officials talking, talking down at us uh, Mm -hmm. that we just finally just said, let us just start moving and figuring these things out together. So we're having we're trying to put together uh, basic units of study for each subject area in each grade level. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is a three week intervention? What is a six-week intervention? We're going to ask teachers to, if you, not just saying uh, a child needs some, but really target to us what the child did not ascertain, uh, what their weakness is. Uh, so if we're doing a three-week intervention, we can we can really just target them for that. And we're hoping to do two three-week sessions. But if nothing is done yet, I mean, we're also mm-hmm. exploring two-week sessions. Uh, but real conversations are happening. The remote is not the best way to do instruction. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and the children who have proven to be very successful at it will not be designated to do academic intervention. Right. Well, we it's have a, a challenge. Final, yeah, it, it's really a naughty problem, and I don't think there are any easy answers. Um, no. We have one final question that a teacher sent in for you, sure. which is, what are UFT staff and leaders doing to build alliances with parents and guardians throughout the city? It seems very likely that the city will try to force teachers and students back into school buildings before it's safe. Preparing a response with parents and guardians seem like the best way to get ready to refuse to work in unsafe conditions. What kind of groundwork have UFT staff and leaders done in this regard in terms of, I guess, working with other stakeholder groups? Well, we've been holding parent meetings across the city. I've been doing them myself uh, in numbers. We have some larger ones coming up. Uh, we have the petition, which we have tens of thousands of parent signatures on already, uh, mm-hmm. and that specifically deals with safety, about mm-hmm. we're insisting that you cannot open these schools unless these things are in. There's going to be a lot of fear, as and everyone just has to recognize the fear and anxiety when we do reopen schools. Right. It's, it's going to be real, and it, it really comes down to, all right, take it slow. Let's make sure everything's working the right way, the way we plan it. And if something's not working the way we plan it, it's okay. Let's change it. Let's recognize it. Let's not try to bury it or hide it. Let's recognize it and change it. Because each school in the end is going to have to design, you know, they're going to have a lot of help. A lot of things will be done ahead of time, but the procedures and stuff will be laid out. But because of the very layout, physical layout of our schools, it's going to change a little bit for everyone. Do we keep them in the classroom or do we let them change, even with small class sizes? Mm-hmm. Do we, so do we say, does a child stay in the classroom all day and we move the teacher in and out? Or do we do one-way hallways? Uh, I mean, all of this is part of what we're discussing, but to the point of this is why from now First, we had to get 
the recognition by the elected officials that this is going to be very complicated. We achieved that goal. Mm-hmm. We're still had dealing with a huge economic problem, a funding problem, and now mm-hmm. we and then the other piece we have to work uh, now continue to work on is the parent, the coalition with the parents. And, mm-hmm. and as I said last night on the AFT phone call, I said every state has to have this parent-teacher coalition for safety and for funding, mm-hmm. and just sh- shame anyone who is shame any elected official who is trying to use this or not be truthful and just go out there and go after them. It doesn't matter who it is, Democrat, Republican, Independent, it doesn't matter. Right. And then one of the things that the DOE has, I think, failed consistently at is this kind of transparency that you're talking about, which is the only thing that will really assuage parents and teachers' fears, I think, about going back. It's like when something bad happens, we have to know about it immediately and we have to see that the actions taken are really um, sufficient to address it. And we just don't want any more situations like what happened this spring when, you know, they weren't reporting the deaths, they weren't reporting the problems. It had to come up out through the newspapers. And that's just sort of stoked people's distrust and fears even more, I think. And, And that's exactly the issue, right? Those last two weeks were horrendous. Yeah, yeah. They were horrible. The fighting the first it was fighting behind then it was fighting in public and then that weekend where you know ever we finally were able to push it to the point where we closed the schools and yeah. we, you know people will rejoice i'm like rejoicing we we have so much more problems coming at us uh but i will say that to get the schools closed we did that together it was the parents and teachers who forced the schools to be closed yeah, yeah, and I think there was no willingness well. on the elected sides to for, to close the schools. I know it was it was terrible. I I remember that weekend and the stress that everybody was under and trying to make the message heard. This is not right. And then a lot of teachers were had to go back to school to for the training yep. for another week, and a lot of them were very unhappy about that. Um, unfortunately, yeah. our our show is coming to a close now. I really want to uh, thank you tremendously for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I know how incredibly busy you are, and I hope that you might be able to come back sometime when the plans have solidified a little bit more um, as to what's going to happen over the summer and next fall. Do you think that might be possible? I, I think I would love to do that because I can't believe we've been on the phone an hour. It just like flew by. It was. It, it, it's always fun when you're talking to someone like you because you actually know and uh, have an understanding of this. Half the time, it's like, you know, I have to uh, talk. And when people say things, I'm like, no, that's, that's not right. Let us let me try to uh, give you some enlightenment about what, what's actually going on here. Yeah, sometimes I think I, oh. I know too much because I remember all the failures in the past, and then I see them being resumed once again by new administrations and thinking, why don't we ever learn from our mistakes? But anyway, thank you so much. You've been thank around you. for a long time, too, and you know what the, the errors have been. And hopefully we can we can try to make sure that they don't they don't do them all over again. Uh, again. Thank you so much for your thank advocacy you. and all your great work. Thank you, Michael. So this is okay. uh, bye. This is Lady Hameson. Uh, host of Talk Out of School on WBI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Again, my, our thanks to Michael Mulgrew of the UFT. Our show is available now as a podcast. If you missed the live version, 
But in any case, please consider becoming a WBAI buddy to talk out of school by logging into GiveToWBAI.org or calling 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Next week, we will be preempted for fundraising, but we will return the following Wednesday on May 20th. Until then, be careful and be safe. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.